Welcome to Dig Deep. I'm so glad you're joining me for week four of our series, Cleaning House. And we've said from the beginning of this series that when we're cleaning out a closet, we all know that things tend to get a whole lot messier before they get better. And I think there's a good chance that'll be true for a lot of us um, in our topic today. But as we have in this series asked God to survey the closets of our hearts, to point out anything in us that he wants to remove and lead us into the life that he has for us, there is an area in our hearts, in our lives that we simply have to take in this careful consideration in this series, because there is a part of our hearts that was uniquely and beautifully designed specifically for sex. And it's important that I remind us all right off the bat that that's a good thing. Sexual desire is a good thing. Without well-placed, God-given sexual desire, after all, you and I wouldn't be here. None of us would be here without good, healthy sexual desire. Sex is a wonderful gift, but most of us know pretty intuitively that sex is meant to be, by nature, personal and private. This is why if your parents at Thanksgiving this year were to, at the dinner table, start sharing something about their sex life, you and all of your siblings would run out of the room screaming. And this is why it's every parent's nightmare, including mine, to have your kid walk in on you because no parent wants to the next morning have to have a conversation explaining mommy, daddy, sheep monster time. We all understand that sex is intended to be beautiful and wonderful, but also by nature, personal and private. And that's what makes it such a complicated topic for us to discuss in a series like this. See, we can talk about greed and anger and even envy, but lust, like we're talking about today, misplaced sexual desire is tricky because it's such a personal and private aspect of our lives. But I believe to experience the freedom and joy that God intends for us. This has to be an area that we bring under God's microscope, that we bring to him and pray that same prayer. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me in the way that you want me to go. In one of our key passages for this series, Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Paul didn't shy away from the topic. He said, look, you need to talk about sex. And he lists a lot of different versions of it, sexual morality, impurity, lust. They're all different words for misplaced sexual desire. And Paul uses this image of something lurking within us. And The definition of lurking is, of course, when someone or something remains hidden so as to wait in ambush for someone or something. And we are at a stage of parenting right now where we play a lot of hide-and-seek in our house. And closets, of course, are some of the most popular hiding spots. My kids are really great, probably too great, at hiding in laundry baskets and behind clothes. And one of them I even found on a shelf. I found out later that my husband placed her up there on a shelf in our closet. And one of their favorite things to do is await the moment when they've 
almost been discovered. You are, you are right about to find them in the basket of laundry or behind the clothes. And they reach out and grab your arm and scream in an effort to scare you to death and try to make you pee your pants. They think this is just the best aspect of the game. And it truly is. They love to wait and lurk in the shadows and wait to ambush us when we're about to find them. And allowing lust to live in our hearts is like allowing a murderer to play hide-and-seek in your closet. We have to discuss lust in this series because lust, lurking within our hearts, desperately wants to ambush our lives, ambush our relationships, ambush our minds, our hearts, our marriages. See, as we've said, sex was designed by a loving God, our creator who gave it mysterious power. Sex has mysterious power for human intimacy and satisfaction. But lust, misplaced sexual desire, seeks to do the exact opposite in our lives. Instead of giving us intimacy and satisfaction, lust wants to isolate us and repeatedly promise satisfaction, but leave us empty. And lust takes on many forms. I mean, lust is a really creative enemy. It tries to live in our minds and hearts in the form of pornography and erotic fiction, or just a personal fantasy about a coworker, or a quick lustful thought about a stranger walking down the street. And lust is greedy. Like greed, lust cannot be contained. It grows and promises you more and more and says it'll satisfy you, but only leaves you more and more empty. And part of the problem for us is that we live in one of the most sex-saturated cultures in all of human history. I mean, we talk about sex in our culture as casually as what we ate for lunch that day. It's in every TV show we watch, it's on billboards, it's everywhere we go, and we are bombarded with messages that say essentially that sex can be whatever we want it to be, And that ultimately there are no real consequences for doing whatever feels right whenever we feel like it. And we know from experience and just logically that that couldn't be further from the truth. We know that sex, while it was intended to be a wonderful, beautiful gift, it's incredibly dangerous. We know that. We know the consequences. We know that it has power to do massive amounts of damage in our lives. We know that from personal experience or from the experiences of our loved ones, if from nothing else. Lust wants to ambush our lives. A great resource that I've shared with you before is fightthenewdrug.org. And I love the way they present information. They use research to, to present factual arguments for how lust, with an emphasis on pornography, damages our brains, our hearts, and the world. And the Apostle Paul agrees with that argument. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. You're committing a crime against yourself. Sexual desire is incredibly powerful. And as we've said, that's a good thing. It's intended in its most beautiful form, to bond us deeply and intimately with our spouse. But when it's misplaced, sexual desire has power to change us to do incredible amounts of damage to our brains, our hearts, and the world. 
A few years ago, a researcher named Jim Faust did an experiment with rats. And as you'd probably guess, rats don't usually like the smell of death. They actually have a strong instinct to move away from it. But Faust found a way to change that instinct. Faust put virgin male rats in cages with female rats that had been sprayed with a liquid that smelled like dead, rotting rat. And I know, that's pretty nasty. But as it turned out, the drive to mate was more powerful than the instinct to avoid the smell. Surprise, surprise. And so the rats hit it off. Once the male rats learned to associate sex with the smell of death that was sprayed on these female rats, Faust put them in cages with just wooden dowels soaked in the same smell. And instead of avoiding them, the male rats consistently would run up to them and play with these dowels that smelled like death as though they were soaked in something they loved. And I know that that might seem strange or gross, but it illustrates perfectly that sex was meant to be a powerful glue that hold a husband and wife together. But as this study reveals, the frightening truth is that sex can be paired with virtually anything and it can lead us to desire that thing, even the smell of death itself. Sex can all too easily place us in bondage if it's misplaced. We often will step back and say, I I never would have watched that or slept with that person or made that decision, but the power of sex encourages us to take one step at a time toward things that we would never in a million years have pursued otherwise. And not only does it draw us toward things that we regret, it starts to shape our neuropathways in our brain to draw us toward those things, not just once, but again and again, the very things that steal joy from us. Numerous studies are also now showing that lust leads to an increase in feelings of loneliness, depression, and anxiety. It's a draw that says you will get satisfaction from this, but in actuality, it leaves you more empty than before. Lust is greedy. It doesn't really want to give you satisfaction. It wants to steal satisfaction from you and leave you worse than it found you. I really want to encourage you, if you want to learn more about the specifics of how lust, especially pornography, damages your brain, physically damages your brain, your heart, and our society, I really encourage you to visit fightthenewdrug.org to learn more there. Now, if you've stuck with me this far, I'm really glad you're still with me. I know that this is a heavy topic, but what I want us to do now is to take a step back, take a deep breath, and ask, okay, so what do we do? If we agree that sex is a good, God-given thing that's intended to draw a man and wife close together, but that out of context, it can cause incredible damage to our lives, lead us to things that we regret, hurt us, lead us into patterns of addiction... Step back and ask, what do we do? How do we fight against the power of lust in our lives? If what the Bible says is true, and what secular researchers agree is true, that lust is an enemy that does us harm instead of good, what should we do about it? So today, I want to look at a story in the Old Testament that shows us one way to battle against misplaced sexual desire. The story comes from 1 Kings chapter 15, and this is where the title for this whole series came from, because this is a story about a king who cleans house. 
And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the most famous king probably in the Old Testament was King David. And his son, Solomon, took over the throne when King David died. And when Solomon died, the kingdom split in two, and it became Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And then we read after that about two long lines of kings in these two kingdoms. They had some good ones, and they had some really bad ones. Well, Judah, which was the kingdom in the south and included Jerusalem, had some really bad luck right off the bat. So in the 20 years after King Solomon died, they had two kings in a row that were terrible, and the culture slipped into some really bad behaviors. We read that they started worshiping a ton of other gods and that there was rampant sexual sin in the culture. Their society exploded with brothels and even temple prostitutes that people would go to these temples and as a part of their worship to these new extra gods, they would solicit these prostitutes as a form of worship. And so despite this tragic swing of their whole culture, we read in verse 4, but God raised up a new king, King Asa. And Asa, we read in verse 11, did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight as his ancestor David had done. And I love in verse 14, we read that Asa's heart remained completely faithful to the Lord throughout his life. His heart remained completely faithful to the Lord throughout his life. And so I have to wonder, did King Asa pray the prayer that we've been praying throughout this series? Was he familiar with the psalm that his great-great-grandfather David had prayed to God, the one we've been praying in this series from Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. I have to wonder if he rose in the morning and prayed those same words just as his ancestor David had done. But we do know that his heart was aligned with God and he did the difficult work of aligning it and realigning his heart with God's heart. So when King Asa takes office, he gets to work cleaning house. In verse 12 and 13, we read, King Asa banished the male and female shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even deposed his grandmother Maka from her position as queen mother because she had made an obscene Asherah pole. He cut down her obscene pole and burned it in the Kidron Valley. King Asa was fighting against an entire culture of lust and he started cleaning house. And in this series, we've asked that question, how do we fight these things in our heart? And we've said we fight envy with gratitude. We fight anger with mercy. We fight greed with generosity. And we fight lust with a sledgehammer. I think King Asa would encourage us to fight lust with a sledgehammer. Now, you all know if you've been listening to the podcast for a while that I am a huge fan of the show Fixer Upper. And one of my favorite things about the show, certainly my husband's favorite thing about the show, is when Chip Gaines gets to do Demo Day. And he gets his sledgehammer and rips the house down to its studs so that it can become what it was intended to be. And that's what King Asa does. He goes buck wild crazy with his own Demo Day, smashing things to bits, ripping things down, expelling people from the kingdom, burning things in the middle of a valley outside the city gates. One of the best ways that we personally can fight 
lust is by physically destroying and removing things in our lives that lead us to sexual temptation. So we clean off hard drives. We burn a copy of that book. Place filters on our internet. We cancel those channel subscriptions. We need to shut down that inappropriate relationship. Jesus said these famous and controversial words in Matthew 18, verse 9. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. And I've heard people debate whether Jesus really meant we should actually go get a spoon and gouge out our eyeball, or if he just meant it metaphorically. And regardless of what he meant by it, most of us won't even get rid of our internet access or our TVs or name any American luxury that can get entangled with any type of sin in our lives. Jesus is calling us, get rid of it. Physically remove it. Destroy it. If the internet is a problem, get a dumb phone instead of a smartphone. Use an internet filter. If you own actual physical material, get rid of it. Burn it. Smash it. Destroy it. Cancel the subscription. If you're a parent, you'll need a sledgehammer in each hand to protect you and your children from this attack of lust in our culture. Most research findings suggest that children now are viewing porn between ages of 9 and 11, with many children being exposed as early as ages of 5 and 6. And researchers all agree that the number is rapidly rising of children who are viewing porn and that the age of introduction is getting younger And younger, just this past week, a friend emailed me saying that a friend of hers came to her devastated because she had just discovered that her 12-year-old stepson had been viewing porn for three years already. And I am not going to suggest or advocate that you lock your children in their bedroom with nothing but food, water, and a Bible until their 21st birthday. And there's truly no way to 100% safeguard your children against the attacks of this world. But... There are several things right in our own homes that may need some sledgehammering. Some things that I, if you're a parent, want to encourage you to pray about and consider are removing TVs or computers from the bedrooms in your home and only keeping them in main living spaces. You can read more about the effects of having electronics in bedrooms online. Just Google it and you'll be fascinated by the research. Pray about installing filtering software like NetNanny on all of your family's devices. And most importantly, talk with your children boldly about the beauty of sex as God intended it in the context of marriage. And then talk about them lovingly and boldly about the dangers of sex when it goes outside of those God-given boundaries. Don't think my children are too young, maybe in a few years. The age is getting younger and younger. We need to have a voice in our kids' lives and destroy the lies and attacks of the enemy. If you're married, as a spouse, make decisions that leverage your power as a spouse in your spouse's life. Wives, yes, Victoria's Secret sends some great coupons. Is it really worth it? I've had to cancel my subscription multiple times. They keep sending it to me thinking I want it, and I just don't need it in my mailbox. It doesn't help my husband at all. Couples, 
make time to help each other make choices about the shows that you watch or the decisions that you make regarding your sex life together. Grab a hold of the things in your life that are leading you or could lead you or your family toward lust, pull them out into the open, and smash them to bits. This week, talking with my husband about this episode and how heavy this topic is on my heart, he shared a story with me that he'd never shared before. And in our series, Restoration Marriage, I interviewed my husband, Ben, and he shared very openly about his struggle with pornography that lasted 12 years and um, caused some damage in our marriage in the very beginning. And he shared how he has since experienced freedom and for the last 10 years has been free from pornography. And I asked him to write out the story that he told me earlier this week so that I could share it with you. He writes, When I arrived in the parking lot of Pemberton Park, I was relieved to see no other cars there. I wanted privacy, and barring some unlikely dog walker, I would probably not encounter any other people for at least a few minutes. I pulled the small tan leather suitcase from the trunk of my car and walked quickly down the hill to the head of the trail that led to the far back section of the park near the riverbank. After about ten minutes of walking, I reached the most remote area I knew of and set the suitcase down on the cement base of a transmission power pole. I figured the cement foundation would be the safest place to do what I needed to do. I unlatched the suitcase and opened the top, revealing the collection of pornography I had been acquiring since I had started looking at it three years prior. From the moment I discovered pornography and masturbation, shortly after turning 13, I had felt a deep sense of shame. I plunged into addiction swiftly, and it was now three years later, I was 16, and I was afraid. I knew that what I was doing with my mind and my body was not in line with what God wanted from me, but I didn't know how to stop. It felt like a wildfire sweeping through a forest in the peak of a dry summer, or like the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, a man-made disaster that nobody seemed to know how to correct or control, and was polluting the pristine Gulf relentlessly. But I'd never spoken to anyone about my addiction, not my friends, not my dad, not my cousin, nobody from church. I was too ashamed, too afraid, and I didn't know what to say or who to talk to. But I'd been talking with God about it, and I knew I needed to change. I was here to attempt a jailbreak, because I hoped that if I could get rid of the pornography, I could starve out the beast that was consuming me. I pulled out a catalog and the lighter I had brought with me, and set fire to one corner, then adjusted the angle until the flame really took. I could feel the flames getting close to my fingers, but needed to let it really catch. I set it back among the other catalogs and magazines in the suitcase and worked them around with a stick until they were all burning. The next 15 to 20 minutes were spent pacing back and forth to different trails, watching for other people, praying that nobody would come while the fire consumed the evidence of my addiction. It seemed to be taking forever to burn the damn things, and I started to realize that if I got caught there with this flaming suitcase of porn, not only would I be humiliated, but I would most likely get arrested. Whether I heard voices or footsteps or a dog barking, or if I just got too paranoid about the shame and trouble that could be impending, I don't remember. I just remember running away, leaving a burning box of shame on the cement utility pole base, praying that God would burn it all up and accept it as a guilt offering. I ran all the way back through the park, as fast as I could navigate the turns along the trail, 
I jumped in my car and sped home. I wish I could say that was the last time I dealt with the monster that had made a home in my heart, the last time I had a secret box of shame hidden away under my bed or in the back of my closet or a corner of the attic. But that wouldn't be the truth. In fact, it wasn't for another four or five years that I ever confessed my addiction to another person, and it wasn't for another five years after that until I finally burned the last box, shattered the last disc, deleted the last file, cleaned every closet, and experienced real freedom from the addiction that held me for 12 years. But I didn't do it alone. I tried to escape it alone that day in the park as a 16-year-old, but this is not the sort of prison you escape on your own. It was only years later when I confessed to my wife and received her forgiveness and received love in the face of my failure that I felt empowered to change. It's only through that confession and our continual efforts to live fully open with each other that I believe has made it possible for me to live free from my enemy for over a decade. We need to fight lust with a sledgehammer. But we aren't meant to fight it alone. We need to fight it arm in arm with each other. See, lust desperately wants you to keep it a secret because it loses so much power when it's brought out into the light. The problem is it takes incredible guts to drag lust kicking and screaming into the light. It's so easy to believe the lie that it's better if we keep it in the dark, keep it locked away. It's a private issue after all, such a personal thing. And if we were honest about it, it could cost us our reputation and our relationships, maybe our marriage. But we cannot try to handle it alone. Because left alone, in the dark, it only grows. King Asa didn't allow himself to be too worried about his reputation. He could have had the temples secretly destroyed at night and in the morning say, Oh man, what happened to all the temples? Oh well, it's for the best. Or if he had such strong feelings about the shrines and prostitutes, he could have said, Well, I just won't go to those shrines. I personally won't engage in those behaviors. I won't solicit those prostitutes. But no, he did it publicly because he knew that things that get destroyed will often just get rebuilt. And he decided to take a stance. He was making it known, not on my watch. These things will not exist as long as I am king. And in the same way, you and I need to leverage our influence as parents, as spouses, as friends to set those we love free. And we need to humbly but boldly ask others to leverage their influence in our lives to set us free. Lust grows in secrecy, but it's only killed out in the open, and it's best defeated in community with others. So what is it in your life that you know needs the sledgehammer? What's in that suitcase for you? That personal fantasy that porn, that erotic fiction, that little crush for someone other than your spouse. Tell someone you trust about it today. And then, literally, 
destroy it. Destroy it. Take it into a field and burn it. Smash it to bits. Throw it off a cliff. And do it alongside someone who loves you and who loves God and wants to see you live a life marked by freedom, satisfaction, and peace. Thanks so much for sticking with me today through this tough topic. Please know that I am going to be praying for you this week as you face those things in your life that might need the sledgehammer. Please plan to join me again next week as we wrap up our series, Cleaning House, by discussing one of the enemy's worst tactics, um, the enemy of shame in our hearts and our lives. I believe that it's going to be a really important week in the series as we close out together. So please join me next week, and I look forward to seeing you then. 